0: Hello, and welcome to PwC's accounting and reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. In today's episode, we're going to cover an accounting fundamental, restructuring debt. Most companies deal with this issue at some point, but it's not a day-to-day occurrence, and the rules can get complex. It's a topic we touched on in last month's Accounting and Reporting Developments webcast, but for today's discussion, we're going to dig a little deeper into the model and key considerations. I'm happy to welcome back to the studio, Suzanne Stefani, a director in our national office who focuses on debt-related issues. Many of you will recognize Suzanne from her appearance on the webcast, as well as her debt classification podcast released last spring. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get started. (music) So Suzanne, welcome back to the studio. Thank you. Uh, happy to have you back today, and I think the topic that we're going to be talking about I know will be of interest to a lot of our listeners, and it's around restructuring of debt, and that's something that a lot of companies do in some form at different times. I think there's a lot of different words you know, that we can use to talk about that, so hopefully we'll go through that. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just kick things off talking about what companies should think about first when we're talking about debt restructuring?
1: Yeah, sure. So. I think the first question to ask when you have any sort of change with your debt is, do I have to apply the debt restructuring guidance to this change? So I think it's pretty obvious to most people if you do something like make a change to your existing debt agreement, like for example, you might go to your lender and ask to extend the maturity date or change the interest rate, something like that, that's pretty obvious that you should apply the debt restructuring guidance. But it's not only limited to changes that are made in the same agreement. So just wanted to point this out. So it's really, anytime you make a change to your debt, you should ask two questions. Did the change impact the cash flows in any way, such as the timing or amount? And is the lender the same before and after that change? So if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then you should apply the debt restructuring guidance. So the reason I wanna bring this up is because sometimes companies might miss that they're in this guidance because they're really focusing only on the legal form of the transaction. So a common example would be, say you have a syndicated debt refinancing. So in a syndicate, there's multiple lenders in the debt. And let's say a company goes out and they issue new debt and they get money, they take that money, and they pay down existing debt. So it is really in legal form, it it truly is an extinguishment, and you really do issue new debt. Money's changing hands. But if there are any lenders in the new debt that are also lenders in the old debt, then you do have to apply the debt restructuring guidance to those lenders. So what some may miss is because the legal form is an extinguishment and new issuance, They just simply account for it that way based on the legal form, but they really need to think about the debt restructuring guidance.
0: So Suzanne, basically you're saying that anytime there's a change to the debt, but the lender remains the same before and after, and I think we're going to get into the subtleties there, Mm -hmm. then you could be in the, or you would be in the debt restructuring guidance and it's not around legal form. Um, And so in particular, I guess with syndicated debt, when there's multiple banks involved, then you could get into the situation where some of the lenders are the same and some aren't.
1: Right, and, and when you're doing this test and you're assessing a debt restructuring for syndicated debt, it's done on a lender by lender basis. So it will probably be the case that some lenders that are in the new debt would have also been in the old debt and would be subject to the debt restructuring guidance. Whereas others won't, like others will be completely new in the new debt, weren't in the old or vice versa. Maybe they were in the old, but not in the new. So the first thing you should do when you have a syndicated debt refinancing is take the lender listing, the old one and the new one and kind of line it up or however you do it and bucket all those lenders that are common to the old and the new, cause those are gonna be in the debt restructuring guidance and then bucket the new ones cause they're gonna be a different set of accounting. And then obviously bucket the ones that are old and completely get out. So just really important to kind of look through the lender listing. So then Suzanne,
0: let me come back for a second to the lender
1: listing, but first just
0: to clarify, so you're saying that if you're looking at one transaction, so potentially issued new debt, taken out old debt, you actually could wind up accounting for that one transaction using different models.
1: Yeah, so the ones that are common to the old and new debt would be the debt restructuring guidance, and the others would just be simply out of the debt restructuring. Those that completely get out of um, the arrangement and the old debt would be just a traditional debt extinguishment, and those that are completely new would just be accounted for as new debt. But today in this podcast, we're just kind of focusing on those common lenders and the restructuring guidance.
0: Okay, great. That's helpful. And then I think just comment on the lender listing. I know you make it sound so easy line up the two listings, <laughs> match them up. And um, for my days as an auditor, I definitely remember it is not always that easy. Okay, no. Definitely still a very critical point. And yeah. to your point, it is something that it's important for both the companies and the auditors to focus on because it really will impact mm-hmm. the accounting here. Um, okay, so then, and then, Suzanne, last thing before we go on and actually talk about the counting, are you talking then just from the perspective of the borrower? Is this also this guidance also going to apply to the lender?
1: Yeah, so this guidance that we're gonna cover today is just from the perspective of the borrower. There's separate guidance for lenders, but today we're just focusing on borrowers. Okay, that's great. So why don't we move on then, actually get into the guidance. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are
0: different models that can be applied and the accounting can vary significantly depending on which model you're under, um, including things like transaction costs, unamortized costs, interest expense, cash flow disclosures, so basically, everything to do with the county depends which model you're in. Um, but can you just start things off by explaining to us what these models
1: are and how you know which one to apply? Sure, so when you're trying to think about what model to apply, it really depends on the specifics of each individual transaction and, and how the restructuring was done. But there are three models. So the first one and the, that you should think about and always think about first is troubled debt restructuring. So you would have a treble debt restructuring if the borrower is experiencing financial difficulties and the lender has granted a concession. So there's specific guidance that'll help you figure this out and and determine if there's a concession and there's some um, qualitative things to think about when you're determining if you're experiencing financial difficulties. So you go through that first and determine if you have a TDR. And why that's really important is sometimes people might miss this TDR guidance and just go right to the other models that I'm gonna talk about in a minute. And it's really important to think about it first because the accounting can be really different if you are in fact in a TDR. Um, One thing is if there was any gain in the transaction, um, a TDR is generally gonna defer any portion of the gain or a good portion of the gain while the debt is still outstanding. So if you miss that, a company might be recognizing too much of a gain up front, for example. Another thing, even if there isn't a gain involved, um, TDRs do require certain disclosures that you say you have a troubled debt restructuring. Um, So that can also be missed if you just go right to the other models.
0: And then I guess, Suzanne, just again, thinking about dealing in real life with Mm -hmm. these transactions, if you are a company or you're auditing a company that is doing well and definitely is not having financial difficulties, mm-hmm. you mentioned there's qualitative factors, so mm-hmm. could you fall into this even if superficially you didn't look like you were having financial issues?
1: I would say no. I mean, you need you need to do, have a concession granted and you need to have financial difficulties. So likely if you were in a strong financial condition, even if for some reason the lender granted you a concession, which wanted, um, you wouldn't expect. Ex- you yeah. wouldn't expect. You wouldn't have a TDR. But actually, when you if you go the other way, when you have companies that are a little questionable and it's kind of judgmental if you have financial difficulties, then I would tell them to start with figuring out if you have a concession because that's just math. So that's usually pretty easy. So you can do the math. If you have a concession, then you can think about financial difficulties. And I think If an unrelated lender is giving you a concession, it's probably pretty likely that you are experiencing financial difficulties, but you'd have to look at the factors.
0: Okay, that's helpful. So then let's assume now I've gone
1: through the TDR and don't have a TDR, Mm -hmm. then what do you consider next? It depends on what type of debt instrument you're restructuring. So there's a model for a term loan and there's a model for a revolver. So if I start with the revolver, that's a little simpler to do. It's a borrowing capacity test, so there's specific guidance where you figure out if the borrowing capacity of the revolver went up or down. If it goes up, then you don't do anything to your unamortized costs that you have on your books. You just change the amortization to amortize them over the life of the new revolver. And you capitalize all costs, so third-party or lender fees that you paid for this restructuring you would capitalize. If the borrowing capacity goes down, then you'd write off the unamortized cost in proportion to how much the capacity went down. So, for example, if the borrowing capacity went down by 25%, you'd write off 25% your unamortized cost Because basically you extinguish that portion yeah. effectively. Yeah. yeah, and again, in that case, even if it goes down, you're going to capitalize all the fees, third party and lender.
0: So then Suzanne, mm-hmm. when you say borrowing capacity, is, are you talking about as straightforward as before I could borrow 50 million, now I can borrow 75 million?
1: I mean, not exactly. So okay. let's say, I'll just make it easy with numbers, say before you had a revolver for $100, okay. Right? And now you have a revolver for, let's say, $50, right? You don't automatically say it went down by 50%. So the way you figure it out is the borrowing capacity is the maximum amount available that you can borrow times the number of, let's say, periods that it can be outstanding. So if you had, if your old revolver, if you were able to borrow $100 and it, was at, it had one year left, the borrowing capacity on that is 100 times one, so 100. If the, on the new revolver, you only have $50 available. Oh, but it's like three years. But it's three years, yeah, then it would be 50 times three, it'd be 150, so the borrowing capacity actually went up. Okay. So Yeah, so that's a good question, because you, sh- you shouldn't just say, look at the number you can borrow, but it's really that formula. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah. Okay, so then now, what if I'm dealing with the term loan? Yeah. So if you're dealing with the term loan, then you have to do this test that's commonly called the 10% test. And you do it, and it'll tell you if you have a modification or an extinguishment. And the accounting varies for both. So let's start with a modification. So if you had a modification, you're not going to change the carrying value of your old debt. So it means you're not going to write off any of your unamortized costs. For any lender fees that you paid for that restructuring, you're gonna capitalize. And then any third-party fees, that could be like legal or underwriter fees, they're gonna be expensed. Now, if you have an extinguishment, it's kind of the opposite. You're gonna write off the carrying value of the old debt, including unamortized costs. You're going to expense the creditor fees and capitalize the third-party fees. And then you're going to bring the new restructured debt on the books at fair value. So it's kind of like the opposite.
0: So then since the 10% test is obviously very critical because you're going to wind up in two different models, why don't we move on and actually talk about how that 10% test
1: works? Sure. So the 10% test compares the cash flows of the old and the new debt. And then if the change is 10% or more, then it's an extinguishment. And then, of course, if it's under 10%, it's a modification. So let's get into how you do the test. So to come up with the cash flows for the old debt, you'd schedule out the cash payments that have to be made based on the contract terms and discount them back using the old debt's effective interest rate. For the new debt, you'd do the same thing. You'd schedule out all the contractual cash flows based on the new contract terms, but you'd discount them back using the effective interest rate of the old debt. And then also for the new cash flows, you'd add any lender fees that were paid. And then so now you have your old and your new debt and you compare them. And then obviously if the change is 10% or more, it's an extinguishment. Or if it's less, it's a modification.
0: Okay, so seems pretty straightforward and it's just
1: math. But I know you got a lot of questions. So can you go through some of the common questions? Yeah, sure. So there are a few that kind of come up on a regular basis. They're usually related to certain kind of nuances of the guidance that someone could initially miss. And it makes sense that they would miss them because you're not applying the debt restructuring guidance every day, right? So it's like, you don't do it regularly. So there are things that could easily be missed. And a lot of times when you miss these things, what happens is a company will think that they have an extinguishment. They'll do this test and they'll think the change is more than 10%, but they really don't. And and they don't because they're missing certain things. So I wanted to go over a few of them. Um, hopefully we can get to people before they even start the test <laughs> so we can save them some time and just make sure they get to the right answer right away. So the first one is prepayment options. This is really common um, in variable rate debt when debt, it can be prepaid um, at any time usually. So the basic guidance, like I said earlier, tells you to schedule out the contractual cash flows of the new and the old debt. And what a lot of companies do is they start by scheduling out the cash flows, assuming that the debt stays out to the contractual maturity date. But like I said, a lot of debt agreements have puts and calls, and that means that debt could be repaid before the contractual maturity date. These options also have to be considered in the test, and that's what some people are missing. And like I said, the most common one I see is uh, prepayment options. So the guidance for the test says if, de- if the debt is callable or puttable, then separate cash flow analysis should be done assuming exercise and non-exercise of the put and call and that you should use the scenario that gives you the smallest change. So one thing that I see is some companies are overlooking this, like I said, and they're just using the contractual maturity um, scenario and then they stop and they say, okay, that's you know, my answer. That's what I get on the test. So then, Suzanne, if I can call the debt at any time, do I just
0: assume that it happened immediately, or how do you deal with that in yeah. your cash sub test? Yeah,
1: exactly. So that's what we see most times is that the variable rate debt, it can be called at any time. The, comp- the borrower can repay it at any time, right? So one contractual scenario that you could use, even though it might not be... Probable. <laughs> Probable that you're going to actually repay it on the day you take the debt out, but it is a contractual scenario you can use. So if you assume prepayment on day one, then there's no interest, right? And really the only cash flows for the new debt, um, if there was no principal change, would just be assume repayment of the principal and lender fees. Mm-hmm. And so usually that's going to be the one that gives you the
0: smallest change. Okay, I think that's helpful. So basically this is not just sit down, make one schedule, but you really do have to look at the different scenarios. And Mm -hmm. I guess the point is that it's not around what is the most probable scenario. Uh It's just what are the possible scenarios and then which one is the smallest change, and that's how you do your test. Yeah,
1: which one looking at all the possible scenarios that are not contingent. Okay. Basically. Okay. And when you say
0: contingent, something has to happen in order
1: to allow you to right. do Right. But that. like a prepayment option is not a contingent option because you can do it anytime. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. That's helpful. I know another question you get quite often is around changes in principle and how you think about those in the 10% test.
1: Yeah. So that's another area that can get overlooked and again, kind of lead someone down the wrong accounting path sometimes. So. Like I talked about earlier with syndicated debt refinancings, right, when a company goes out and issues new debt and pays off old debt, and you have some of those lenders that kind of roll over and they're the same, so we're doing the 10% test for those, Um, it's really common for the principal balances for each lender to change in those. So really are, you know, giving new cash and getting repaid. And a common mistake here is to forget to include impact of the principal change in the 10% test in the new cash flows. And really you need to treat any increase in principal as a day one cash inflow for the new debt and any decrease would be a day one cash outflow. So I just want to go through a kind of a simple example. So say you had a lender and we're, it's a syndicated debt arrangement, right? But we're looking at one lender and that one lender had say, a million dollars in the old debt. And let's just say in the new debt, they have five million dollars. So really, the lender gave an additional four million dollars in cash to the borrower. So let's say, just to be simple, that the old and the new debt are prepayable and there's no lender fees. So the cash flows on the old debt, if we assume prepayment, would be a million dollars. They're just repaying the principal balance, basically. The new cash flows, we would have One, the first thing we would have would be a $4 million cash inflow for the principal increase, positive amount. So that's the difference between the new principal plus the old principal, so 4 million. And then we'll turn around and assume immediate repayment of the new $5 million principal. So that's an outflow, so negative, right? So the net cash outflow for the new debt would be a million, right, which is the same as the old debt, which is a million and you'd have a modification. But what a lot of, or not a lot, but what some people might do is they might forget to do that $4 million inflow, because they're just looking at right. the terms of the new debt. So I could see how that could be missed, but I just want to point it out because you would get vastly different answers in that case. So
0: Yeah, so then Suzanne, actually that raised another question from you, because we talked at the very beginning, and especially in the case of the syndicate, that mm-hmm. that's where it can get complicated, that you kind of segregate uh-huh. your scenarios. And so then you put everyone who was in the old and the new in sort of the group of it's a debt restructuring. But then do you look at each of them individually and figure out for each mm-hmm. lender yes. this calculation?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you have to do okay. lender by lender for everyone. And so it can take some time, you know, if you have a lot of lenders, but yeah, you have to do it, especially when you change principal and things are changing, got to look at it lender by lender. Okay. And then
0: you also have to calculate different scenarios. So you yeah. really could wind up with a lot of calculations just for yeah. one restructuring. So then Suzanne, thank you for that. And I guess you now we're out of topics. We've covered our top 5. But one of the things I saw when I was preparing for this is obviously that this Also, could have an impact on the statement of cash flows. And Mm -hmm. considering the statement of cash flows is another area we always get questions, thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about how debt restructuring fees should be presented on the statement of cash flows. Yes.
1: Always good to remember the cash flow statement. Right. So, yeah, so let's go through the two scenarios you could have for term loans um, because there's different treatment. So, let's start with we have a restructuring. So, we did the 10% test and it's accounted for as an extinguishment so that means the old debt is considered extinguished and we it's like we have a new debt instrument for the new debt in this case we would say all fees so creditor and third party would go to financing Um, the reason we say that is there's specific statement of cash flow guidance for a traditional debt extinguishment and when i say that i mean that's when you Simply repay debt, and you don't have any new debt going on. And that guidance says all costs related to an extinguishment are financing. So we extend that here. We think it makes sense to extend it even in the the debt restructuring case. Now, if you get to modifications, now for a modification, the creditor fees are capitalized, and the third-party fees are expensed. So let's start with the creditor fees. Um, We would think financing is appropriate because it's kind of like, because it's capitalized as a debt discount. So it's kind of like you're prepay or you're paying a debt discount. So we think financing makes sense there. For third party fees, those are expensed and those should go into operating because they're hitting net income. You don't really have a new debt issuance here. So operating makes sense there.
0: Okay, good. That was helpful, Suzanne. And I think definitely a good conversation today. A lot for people to think about. So I know that they can find more information in the financing guide and then statement of cash flows in the financial statement presentation guide. Right. Okay, good. And if you're listening and didn't catch us on the September Accounting and Reporting Developments webcast, a replay is available on cfodirect.com. It's a helpful update for the quarter, so I encourage you to check it out. We'll include a link to the replay in the show notes to this episode. Please join me here again next week when I welcome Andreas Oll, a partner in PwC's national office, back to the studio. Andreas and I will be joined by Chad Morsi, a principal in PwC's deals practice. Andreas and Chad both specialize in business valuation, and I'm looking forward to our discussion of the FASB's invitation to comment on goodwill. Frequent listeners will recognize Andreas from our discussion of this topic last summer. The comment letter period for the invitation to comment ended on October 7th, and I'm looking forward to hearing some early reactions. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review or connect with me on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.